everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey guys, Jen Hatmaker here. Welcome to the For the Love podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. We are in a series right now called For the Love of Faith Icons. So I'm talking to people who have put their hand to the work of faith and church and scripture and spiritual development for some time. These have been leaders for decades and um, they've built amazing ministries and churches and faith spaces. And we have a lot to learn from them. I have a lot of questions for them because my gosh, if you started ministry 30 or 40 years ago and you're still in it, some stuff has gone down. Things have changed and shifted. And um, I mean, talk about real transitions in leadership. And so, you know, I don't shy away from any questions. So I had, I had some stuff to ask, especially today's guest. So you probably know Andy Stanley. Andy, gosh, where do we start? Well, first of all, he's the founder of North Point Ministries, which has seven churches in the Atlanta area, and then like a network of over 90 churches around the planet. So that's a deal. Uh, you probably, you maybe know Andy's dad, renowned pastor, Dr. Charles Stanley, um, and we, who we talk about in this interview. I think you'll find that interesting because of course, Andy's doing things very differently than his dad did, uh, but he had some really meaningful things to say about his relationship. And so I, I really actually loved that part of our conversation. Super prolific communicator, Andy. He's, um, uh, gosh, well, he's the host of the show, Your Move with Andy Stanley, which reaches millions of people, uh, on NBC and podcast, um, He's also been podcasting, by the way, since basically they invented iPods. Um, He hosts the Andy Stanley Leadership Podcast. Um, And then, of course, he's the author of more than 20 books. We're going to talk about his latest book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the New that Jesus Unleashed for the World, Um, which, according to him, is a book for anyone who cares deeply about the future of the church. But, as you will hear, it ruffled some feathers. And there was some pushback and some criticism. And Andy and I talk a lot about that. Like what was under his ideas as he really, um, sort of posited his viewpoint of scripture and what it means and where its value lies and how we are to both interpret it and value it. Um, it's, I mean, it's a real interesting conversation. And so Andy, I really appreciated his candor as he talked to me about um, his convictions there and what that looks like. So I think you're going to find that really, really interesting. And I talked to him about what is the church's role in um, injustice in this world right now, as we it's we're surrounded by it. Like, do we have a prophetic voice or not? Are we supposed to stay in or stay out? We go in. 
Okay, so we we go in, and I am really grateful to Andy for his just level of frankness that he offered us in this conversation. I think you're going to love it, and I think you're going to be encouraged by it. Um, grateful for his time, grateful for his presence on the show. So um, help me welcome my guest today, Andy Stanley. I'm so happy to be talking to you, and so glad to have you on the podcast, Andy. Thank you. Hey, it's my honor to be here. And we were just chatting before that we haven't actually seen each other in about five years. So I hope you've uh, been doing well, apparently so. I don't know if you remember this, but I'm going to jog your memory. Um, I think I just shot at five years. I think that's about what it was. I did an event at your church, and it was kind of this yep. joint um, women on in one sanctuary, men in the other. And Craig Rochelle had the guys, and I had the girls. Here's the main thing that I remember from that night, um, which I still have. And probably, I'm going to say, one of the more bizarre moments of my entire um, adult ministry, uh, you handed me um, a, a bobblehead of myself. Do you remember this? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's surely that's not the first bobblehead you've gotten of yourself, is it? I, I tell you that it was. First and oh, only. Good. Um, good. And right. so that's... Everybody should have one of those. <laughs> So what's funny is my friends think that's hilarious and they take that bobblehead and then it shows up in real weird places like since that day. Um, so I want you to know that you're, it lives on. Well, I have someone, somebody gave me one many years ago and Sandra takes it and she hides it. And then yeah. I have something that I hide and we hide them all over the house to scare each other. <laughs> and it's just a, uh, mine is so bizarre. I can't even describe it. I was in Romania and this kid painted a picture of me and it's a caricature and it's huge and it's like watercolor <laughs> and it looks like I'm a creature, but it's like a life-size head on this roll-up canvas. And so I hide it in the, in the dryer and in the washing machine. I put it in her drawers. She opens her drawers and there I'm staring. It is so creepy. So yeah. <laughs> That is amazing. The other thing, too, I thought you were going to say is because that was an interesting event where we had the men in one room and women in the other. (laughs) And I thought you were going to say, so is that how you do all of your services? You have the men in one room and women in the (laughs) other. Let's just divide and conquer here. Okay, so obviously most of my listeners, of course, know who you are. And I've talked a, a little bit about your credentials and who you've come from and all that. So before we sort of dive into your work now in church, I would love to talk a little bit about your early years because they're, well, they are, they're important to all of us, but especially to you because you grew up with a dad who's a faith icon in his own right, obviously, Dr. Charles Stanley, um, super, you know, well-known and respected voice in the Christian church. And so I know what it's like to grow up with a parent in ministry. I am a, I'm a minister's kid too. Um, and now I'm a grown up doing the same thing, even though I said I wasn't going to. Uh, so I would love (laughs) to hear from you some of the just, maybe I'm leading the witness here, but some of the scrutiny and maybe the pressure that you may might have felt growing up yeah. with your dad being so well known around the world. Like, what was that like for you as a kid? Well, it was 90% wonderful and positive, and mm. partly because my parents bent over backwards not to put that extra, you know, preacher's kid pressure on yeah. my sister or on me. I mean, like, some of my fondest memories are my dad basically just telling people to back off when mm. they would come to him with, you know, extra stuff. I, the story that Louie and I, Louie Giglio and I grew up together at my dad's church and 
the story that we both tell is um, when Sunday after church, well, Bluey and I used to skip church all the time and go down to the Varsity, which is a restaurant where you, they had televisions on, sure. live television. And we would stand up and change the channel and watch my dad's service from the Varsity just so I'd know enough about the sermon to be able oh, to get in the car and say, hey, amazing. dad, the thing about the dog was so good, you know. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah, my, so his assistant one Sunday said, um, Dr. Stanley, you just need to know that so-and-so saw um, Andy and Louie headed down the street, da 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 da, and yeah. they were skipping church. So she told on us, and he. So I, I'm driving. We're driving home that afternoon after church, and I'm in the back seat. I remember and it was just the two of us for some reason. He said, uh, he said, Andy. He said, uh, Evelyn came in today and said yeah. that she saw you and Louie um, headed down, probably toward the varsity, about time the service was going to start, and yeah. then paused. And he said, and you know what I told her? I said, no, sir. He said, I told her you raise your kids. And you let me raise mine. And that's wow. all he said. And here I am, a, wow. you know, 100 years later. I still remember that. So that that really was the posture. And so consequently, it was, for the most part, it was great. I got to meet yeah. amazing people, go amazing places. So, And of course, as a pastor, of course, all three of my kids are preacher's kids. And I tried yeah. to take a you know page out of his playbook. Totally. Um, my my dad was never like the hovering minister presence. My dad was super rogue anyway. Like he's not a typical um, pastor at all. But it was like my mom was the one in the choir, in the choir loft. And so it wasn't just my mom. <laughs> it was all my best friend's moms. Watching and their dad. you. Oh, watching us. We're, I don't think they ever heard a sermon in their lives. All they did was stare at us and give us the evil eye for passing notes and falling asleep in church. So, I mean, we couldn't escape the choir. I, I love hearing that story about your dad because how tempting would it have been for him to double down on that? That's an oh, yeah. awesome story. Yeah, he did it right. Yeah, he sure did. We're trying to do the same thing because we're like, how much therapy can we actually pay for for five kids? <laughs> you know, we've got to do this right the first go around. Um, you so know, the I, other thing I think about yeah. being a preacher's kid, because I love hiring pastor's kids, because any anytime a pastor's kid wants to be in ministry, that, that says so much about their parents, their family, their church. But one of the things that you can appreciate, too, when you grow up in that world— you understand real quickly never to be impressed with what a person's like on stage with a microphone. Totally. That, and the average person gets so, I think, drawn in and suckered in and, and somewhat um, almost hypnotized by giftedness. And when you grow up in ministry, you really you may not have the – we don't have – may not have the terminology early on, but we realize real quickly – what a person can do on stage with a mic, that's not the time to judge their character, their maturity, or really anything else about them other than their giftedness. And so, you know, and people are like, oh, I just felt like he, the spirit was moving tonight. And I'm like, well, maybe the room was full. Maybe it had more to do with the room full. So you just, I don't know. I think we see maybe a little bit more clearly and um, maybe hopefully it makes us a little bit more effective. I don't know. But I had a great experience growing up. I hope you're right. I, I couldn't agree more <laughs> that um, – Sometimes stage presence is not a whole lot more than just plain old charisma. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, it's you and I've seen behind the curtain since we were kids. And so I yep. uh, have the same standards as you. Um, show me, show me what you're like on a Tuesday, you know, yep. show me what you're like when things at are going home. sideways. Yeah. At home. Exactly. Um, let me ask you this. Cause um, it's, you know, so many of us have, watched you and learned from you and listened to you and, and followed you for a really long time. And so I'd like to hear in your own words, 
I don't know, what point did you feel like it was okay, or you had some sort of permission, if you will, well, to ask questions about your own faith, like not your dad's, but Mm, yours, Uh, and then maybe even practice it a little differently from your dad's, which is very, a normal sort of generational shift. Um, Because like processing the faith that we had as a kid is this lifelong process. And so I wonder how that has looked for you as an adult, and then ultimately like parse it out for how that kind of affects the way you lead your own church now. Well, the shift for me actually started in seminary. I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, and I had a very devotional understanding of and devotional approach to the Bible. But going to DTS, I mean, my mind was blown in terms of the academic side of theology and Bible study and all of that. And what that did for me, and this and this is not true for everybody. Sometimes seminary, you know, undermines people's faith. But for me, when I understood the history of Christianity, or began to understand it. And when I understood the history of how we got our Bible, and thanks to Dr. Norman Geisler, mm. my faith, you know, this is, you know, in my late 20s or mid to late 20s, my faith shifted from a anchor it to the Bible faith to an mm. anchor it to the event of the resurrection faith. Wow. And I was no I was no longer afraid, and this sounds so strange, but most of your listeners understand this. I was no longer afraid of what I might bump into in the Bible. And I felt far less pressure to be able to defend everything. And I felt a lot less pressure to sand off all the rough edges and make it all fit together perfectly. Oh, that's good. And to be and that's not to say that it can't be made to fit together perfectly. I'm just saying I felt the freedom. I didn't feel like my faith hinged on my ability to prove that everything in the Bible was true. Because, you know, once upon a time, there were thousands and thousands of Christians with no B-I-B-L-E, and somehow their faith endured far, far more pressure than we'll ever feel. So really, it was in an academic environment that I felt like my faith got more grounded, and Mm -hmm. I felt the freedom to to think. And then secondly, the second part of your question, um, you know, I was working with college students in Dallas, then I came work for my dad for 10 years with high school students. And the freedom that we have in student ministry to explore and to try and to be creative. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a playground of ideas. And so, again, I, those things, you know, blended together. I just felt permission. And then again, when I came to work for my dad, he gave me extraordinary freedom to um, do things that were a little bit unusual, a little bit unorthodox. And he supported me, you know, you know, a hundred percent. So that's kind of the short version. Well, let's talk about North Point a little bit. So, um, obviously you went on to plant North Point and then it just, you know, grew exponentially and, and you went down a little bit of a different road than the one that you came up on. Um, and obviously dealt with what, what feels like some struggle when you go a different direction. I love the North Star that you have for your ministry, which is you're trying to create, as you say, churches that unchurched people love to attend. Uh, I want to talk about that for a minute because... I, I, like you, churched my entire life. And so I think it's interesting to think through this lens. What does somebody who is not familiar with church or or burned by the church, which is something, of course, you and I both see a ton, what are they looking for? And um, so can you talk through your perspective there, what you are hoping that people find at North Point um, and what you hope to be offering uh, to really to everybody who walks in the door? 
Yeah, I love talking about this, and so just interrupt me when I've no, gone too off long. You go. But but well, there's a couple of big differentiators. Um, first, I again reading the New Testament, I'm convinced everybody can take a step to follow Jesus from wherever their starting point is, regardless of what they believe about Jesus. Hmm. And I say that because in the New Testament, that was his invitation. It was, follow me, follow me, follow me. And hopefully somewhere along the way, you'll start to believe. But we know from the from the Gospels, even at the very end, they walked away. So I my approach and the approach we've tried to create all of our language and our ministries around and our environments around and experiences around is this whole idea of take a step, take a step. Everybody's invited to follow Jesus. Our mission is to inspire people to follow Jesus because Jesus introduced the kingdom of heaven to earth and everybody is invited to participate in it. So when that's the front end of the messaging, um, then regardless of what a person believes, we're not saying here's four things you got to believe. You got sure. to swallow the whole thing or you can't do anything at all. Yeah. And, and my kind of subtitle to that for me and my personal evangelism is that I'm convinced following Jesus will make your life better and it'll make you better at life. Hmm. And in time, you may discover he deserves to be followed. That's but good. But take a step and follow Jesus. And I tell you who resonates with this message is Jewish people. Jewish people who want to connect in some sort of faith world, but of course the Jesus peace and you know Messiah peace that is such a big pill to swallow. But to say, hey, you, look, just take a step. Sure. Read, um, just you know, take a step to follow Jesus. The, the second thing is that I teach from the foundation, as I mentioned earlier, and there's a lot about this in the book. That the foundation of our faith is an event. It's not a book. The foundation mm. of our faith is an event, the resurrection. The Bible did not create Christianity. That's good. And so my whole, I don't know, mission or vision in terms of communicating is to tether people's faith to the event that launched the movement that eventually brought us the Bible. Mm. So the event of the resurrection that launched the movement, the church, that eventually brought us the Bible. So the early Christians' faith began with the event and the person, not a book. And when I say That's that, right. people get nervous, and I understand that. But I went to I went to Dallas Theological Seminary. Believe me. Yeah. You know, I'm Dr. Geisler would come back from the dead For and sure. haunt me if he thought this... I had abandoned you know high view of scripture. So, um, and again, unchurched people find this to be a much easier on ramp of to faith because it's not presuppositional. And by yep. that, I mean you don't have to start with okay, I believe the whole Bible's true. Step yep. number two. And it's not anti-intellectual, but That's best right. of all, it's true. It's yeah. irrefutable historically and logically, um, but it makes traditional evangelicals a little nervous, and I understand that because when anybody starts talking in different terms about the Bible, mm. everybody should get nervous and sit up straight. I totally get that. Mm. But I learned this. I got this framework, again, from Dr. Geisler, who is the editor of the book, Inerrancy, which is used in every conservative mm. Bible college and seminary almost in the world. So this is not a departure from a, a high view of Scripture. This is a bit of a departure in terms of an approach to helping people take their first steps. So I want to I want to talk to you more about that because um, I am familiar um, with what can sometimes be like a really uh, knee jerk reaction inside the Christian community. Um, yes, yes toward, you are very familiar I, with that. I, I have heard Goodness. that this is true. <laughs> and I'd like, I would love to hear you talk more about that and what it is sort of 
bedrock in our community that has, I think, created a bit of an aversion to several things that, in my vantage point, have always been incredibly integral to a faith that is growing and robust. Things like curiosity, Mm -hmm. um, things like dialogue, things like um, listening to just just frankly, a perspective or an approach that maybe, you know, wasn't the same exact one we grew up with. What What do you think? I mean, you've been at this a long time. What do yeah. you think's under that? Why, why is it? You mentioned the Jewish community a minute ago. I've learned a lot from the Jewish community too. But one of my favorite things about the way that they engage with God is they have just sort of a baked in sense of curiosity about scripture, yeah. about stories, about interpretations and it's it's not always such a um threat it doesn't always no. seem like the whole thing's about to unravel but rather i find it this really like intellectual and open-hearted and open-handed approach to god that he's managed to use generation after generation okay that was a long intro i just would <laughs> like to hear your perspective here on it, do you think it's possible for like the evangelical communities, let's say specifically, to reclaim some of that strength and not get so rattled so easily? Well, that honestly is such a big part of why I wrote Irresistible, reclaiming the new that Jesus came to unleash in the world. Because I have a favorite, um, I, I think every, I have a favorite atheist. I, I love um well, anyway, let me just give you the give you the quote. But okay. I, I love this this quote, and the quote is: Sam Harris says that we mm. should all pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. Mm. We should pay attention to the frontiers of our ignorance. Wow, Christians have a very difficult time doing that, mm. and my theory is the reason is is because we have and th- again this is what gets me in trouble is we have a Bible based, but not just Bible-based, an interpretation of the Bible-based theology that serves as a foundation. And so when that's a foundation, anything that might be threatening, you either have to look the other way or you feel immediate pressure not to be curious, but to batten down the hatches and shore up the, the defenses. And so we end up in a very, very, very defensive posture. And anything that comes along that asks a, a good question, hmm. instead of being curious and going, hmm, yeah. we have to immediately scramble to make sure that there's not a crack in our, our again, our th- biblical theology. And I just don't think Christianity is that fragile. I just don't think we would be here 2,000 years later if it was as fragile and hung by the thread of our ability to make sure there's no space and no cracks in our understanding of how the world works or what ancient, ancient, ancient people thought and viewed. My Another one of my favorite quotes, and I don't ever tell people who said this one. I mean, Sam Harris is my favorite atheist, but this guy is so politically, anytime I say his name, people can't hear what I'm going to say because if he said it. But I love this quote, that God accommodates to our capacity, that Mm. God accommodates our capacity. And we know God accommodates to our capacity. Every parent understands this. Mm. When when your five-year-old says, Mommy, where do babies come from? You don't lie, but you don't give a high school answer, a college Mm. answer, a graduate school answer, a medical school answer. That's a great example. We we know that God accommodates to our capacity because He loves us. So consequently, 
you know, when we look at the scripture, we have to assume because of God's love, he's not lying or deceiving or misleading. He's accommodating the capacity of people who he didn't even know there were germs because we plucked up the books of the Bible and out of their historical roots and put them in a vase and made it a standalone icon. You, if you have to, if you, if your faith hinges on protecting that, you almost cannot be curious. And so this Mm, is fed, fueled the, you know, the, the de- debate between religion and science, Christianity and science, yep. and we could go right down the line. So I think that's a part of it. And so that's why I like to say to people, hey, I got some good news for you. Your faith is not that fragile. It mm. endured the, the Roman yeah. Empire and the temple. It totally. was sandwiched between two extraordinarily powerful influences, and there is no more Roman Empire, and the temple is a tourist attraction. Mm. So we're good. We have a very endurable faith, but and there's plenty of room for curiosity. So that's my... I love that answer. I say the same thing all the time. And one thing I've learned um, is that we can we can press really, really hard on Scripture, and it'll hold. And of course, it'll yeah. hold. And we're not going to be the first generation in history in which God's going to fall out of his out of the sky, like right off his throne. We're not going to do it. We don't have the capacity to like ruin the whole enterprise. Um, with some hard <laughs> questions. Uh, and then, of course, I have I draw a lot of historical strength when I look backward and see every yep. generation has done that. Every single one has exactly. asked hard questions of the forms, hard questions of the templates and of the interpretations. And that's great. One of the best things in life is a good sounding board. I've said it a million times. Nothing is better than a friend who can listen to your brain dump and then cheer you on or throw up red flags, whatever the situation calls for, right? But sometimes we need specialized help, a neutral third party who can look at our situations, at our lives with fresh eyes. And I'm telling you that a wonderful, affordable way to do that is with better help counseling. BetterHelp can connect you to a licensed therapist or counselor online so you can literally get help whenever and wherever you need it. The BetterHelp counselors specialize in a huge variety of needs. Um, Some of those areas you may not even have available to you locally, but here they're available to you anywhere. Thank you to the internet. So BetterHelp has also, you guys, financial aid available to those who qualify, which is great because cost shouldn't prevent someone from getting the help they need. BetterHelp has an amazing offer for my listeners. They are giving you 10% off your first month with the code for the love. Here's what you do. Go to betterhelp.com slash for the love and use the code for the love to get the help you need that you want and you deserve right now. Okay. Back to our show. Okay, so you've mentioned your book. I want to talk about several things in your book. By the way, everybody listening will have all this linked. So don't worry, like you got to go find it right away. We'll link it over to you. Um, Starting here. So forever, for sure, but definitely over the last few years, kind of been a weird time to be alive. You know, it's a weird time to just be a Christian in America. It's strange. Um, And so it, it, it feels like people of faith are deeply thinking right now about 
and discussing and arguing about what it means to actually be a follower of Jesus and how that informs what it is that we believe, how it informs what our values are, how it informs who we stand with and how, um, you know, which for a lot of us may be different than the way we grew up. Um, what is our contribution to the world right now as, as believers? And so I want to talk about that. And then I want to, I want to mention that so many people are choosing right now, of course, we, you and I both know this as church leaders, um, to practice their faith outside of a church community. That's, yep. that's, that is the trend. Uh, so one of the things that you talk about in Irresistible is the notion that church can and has been a very powerful force for good. And so I'd like to hear you talk about both things. Um, this sense of what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in the world right now? And does church have any meaningful part in that still. Um, how would you deal with people who have nothing except for negative, harmful, even abusive associations with a church? That's a lot of questions. I know Jim. it's a lot. Just pick one. <laughs> Just pick one. Pick a thread. Well, historic it's irrefutable historically that the church has not. I mean, it's it's it's. There's no case to be made that the church has not made major contributions to the world and continues to, and outward-facing um, evangelical churches and even outward-facing non-evangelical churches continue every single day, every single week to make extraordinary, do extraordinary good things for the world. Every year, um, we raise several million dollars to give to nonprofits in our local communities, in faith-based and non-faith-based. Every outward-facing church does this. So there's there's no real case to be made that, yeah. oh, the church is just a blight. It's just sucking tax dollars. It there, yeah. does no good. There's, I mean, a person can have a bad church experience and look for evidence to support their conclusions, but yeah. that's, that's just not true. Um, in terms of what it means to follow Jesus, well, to go to the church question, the, is, you know, where two or three or more are gathered in Jesus' name, you know, you're at church. So yeah. There's that. Uh, so mm. the church isn't going anywhere. Of yeah. course, we have we think in terms of the Westernized church, but in the New Testament times, first century, second, third century times, it was people meeting in gardens sure. and in homes and backyards and wherever they could gather safely or you know somewhat safely. And the same is true all over the world today. Absolutely. As you know. So the church, as you said earlier, um, you know. It's gonna, it's gonna continue. I, I, my second favorite Bible prophecy is Jesus standing in Caesarea Philippi, saying to his twelve apostles, "Hey, I'm gonna start a new movement, and the gates of Hades, or basically death, isn't gonna stop it. And on your, on this statement that I'm the Christ, the Son of the Living God, I'm gonna build my ecclesia." And they're looking at each other like, "Well, a new movement? You know, do we need a new movement? We have the nation of Israel." Jesus is like, "Okay, it's gonna be bigger than that. It's gonna be, you know, international, multi generational." And here we are. So. Yeah. The church is going to be fine. And to your point earlier as well, leaders are going to continue to adapt and adopt. And every generation is going to have new, innovative, creative things. Um, And there's always going to be a core. And I just think at the end of the day, you know, the spirit of God inhabits his people, that the body of Christ is a walking, talking temple. Each of us as individuals to some extent are as well. So I don't worry about that. What I worry about is that the church becomes, that local churches are not outward facing. They become mm-hmm. inward facing. And that's when the trouble begins. Because yeah. an outward an outward facing Christian community, they don't argue over stupid things. They don't oh, fight over good. stupid things. They generally have enough money to get the things that need to get done, done. Um, you just you just don't have the, the silliness that often take, takes place when Christians 
are no longer outward facing. They're just holding hands and looking mm-hmm. inward. So, you know, my encouragement to pastors is always, look, don't just have a cool church and a hip church and a modern okay. church. Have an outward facing church with a mission that it's about not who's there, but who's not there. Mm-hmm. And that's going to solve, you're going to have the right kinds of problems, you know, when, when you make that decision. So first of all, um, I'd like to point out to everybody listening that when um, I speak to a pastor, sometimes he says things like, uh, my second favorite favorite biblical prophecy is, that's just a pastor <laughs> thing to say, everybody. So everybody relax. Um, the second thing is... You, know you want to know what my first one is? Then? I have... Uh, of course. Yes, my favorite one is in the, the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus predicts in extraordinary detail the destruction of Jerusalem. This mm. is this is, and I spend a lot of time on this in Irresistible. This is the most overlooked, amazing thing in the Bible to me, because you can visit Jerusalem today and see the stones that were scraped off the top of the Temple Mount when Titus, the Tenth Legion, finally got through that second, you know, curtain wall and destroyed the city and sacked the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. And Jesus predicts this in with extraordinary. Detail. Hmm. It's unbelievable. But unfortunately, the evangelical community took that prediction and made it all about revelation and times right. and have missed this. I mean, it, it it is the primary reason why non-conservative theologians have to have Matthew, Mark, and Luke specifically hmm. written after 70 AD, because if those gospels were written earlier then everybody needs to stand up and pay attention because Jesus is the Son of God to have yeah. made that kind of prediction. It is extraordinary. So that's my uh, favorite biblical prophecy. Okay, I appreciate that. So I want to go back to something you were just saying um, about building outward-facing churches, which is uh, the completely the way that we are wired here, too, at Austin New Church. Um Let me ask you this, because one thing that we hear now, we've built a church um, that tends to attract, I don't know, uh, I'm just going to pick a term. None of them are perfect, but a little bit more of a a church outlier, if you will. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we uh, end up pastoring a lot of people who either have no meaningful church experience in their life or they had a really bad one. So those, that tends to be the, the majority of our yeah. community. Um, and so one thing that we hear often, not just from them, but from also just the greater community that we lead, is that folks feel conflicted and even and disappointed, maybe discouraged, when they see a church, and, I, and I'm just saying church sort of at large in this point, who is, they, who is silent on so many injustices that are just swirling around us in our culture right now. I just we, we can't even escape a single one of them. They're so constant and ubiquitous. And so what do you what do you think about this? Do you believe that the church is to have a meaningful voice when it comes to injustice, when it comes to white supremacy, um, when it comes to violence and exploitation against women, um, when it sort of comes to the dehumanization of immigrants and refugees. I'm just picking some of the ones that we are right. flooded with. Um, yep. what, do you, what do you find the church's role to be there? Because what we see is that the church's silence in that 
which of course is under the umbrella, as people say, as quote, not being political, leaves people on the margins out cold. I'm curious your, your thoughts on this. Um, I guess maybe the question I'm asking you is underneath it. Do you think, as a pastor of a lot of people, do you think the church has, and and the and its leadership primarily, its pastors, its teachers, yeah. its preachers, do we have a responsibility to speak into these things? Yes, ab- absolutely we have a responsibility to speak into the issues. Where I think we should be careful, and I get criticized for this, is because some, you know, when President Obama was president, Andy, why didn't you say anything? President Trump's president, why didn't you say anything? And I always say, look, I don't say anything negative about any body because I hope that body shows up at our church. I want to preach and teach as if they're sitting there. I'm not going to take shots at anybody by name ever with a microphone on standing on a platform, ever. That's just my personal you know, decision. Now, with a group of three or four leaders, with a group of a dozen leaders, people, you know, want to have a conversation, you know, of, of course there's a time and a place. But if, if people make assumptions about the stance of a church or even a pastor just based on Sunday morning platform time, that's just unfair. And there are many people in our churches who left their previous churches because they got tired of that. Mm-hmm. It was the current events church. And the the issue is not what we say, as you know. The issue is what are we doing? Mm-hmm. And churches must be seen doing good. Churches must be seen doing good in such a yeah. way that the church gets the credit for doing good in the community and addressing issues in the community. And there's a way to do that without turning the church into the current event church that you know, every Sunday you show up. Because, I mean, in the city of Atlanta, I'm telling you, you know, every other Sunday— I, we could spend 20 minutes talking mm. about what just happened in our city, much, mm. and that's yeah, true of anybody sure, totally. in a large city, right? So, yes, we should address issues. I think we should address them with our time, our volunteering, and our money, because if you put your money, you know, where your complaints are, then, you know, people take you seriously. So, absolutely. But I, I'm like you. I, I'm a little—it's a little frustrating sometimes when, well, the church and the church and the church never and the church always. I'm like, wait a minute. There are— churches that are that are hip deep into those issues every single day of the week to the point where you know it, it's hard for them to get back to the church stuff because they're they're so socially active so you know it just depends on you know where you stand that mm-hmm. determines what you see a little bit but that's you know that's one person's perspective but in terms of addressing issues we can't not address the issues because Jesus models this for us. I mean, he brought such extraordinary dignity to men, but primarily women and children and slaves and freemen. And so both in our our actions and in our teaching and what we raise to the surface or raise to the top level of our values, all of that is, is super important. So. Agreed. Here's another thing you said in the book that I was really struck by. You said, I've yet to hear a story from anyone who abandoned Christianity based on anything directly related to Christianity, (laughs) at least the original version anyway, and I appreciate that clause at the end because that's worth mentioning. Uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that and um, why essentially Jesus is irresistible? Well... The reason I say that is I love deconversion stories, not because people deconvert. I'm just so fascinated. I read books, articles, blogs, rants, you know, the um, Life After God podcast. I'm Mm. a fan of that because it's just story after story of people who've deconverted. And, um, you know, and as strange as it sounds, it's true. When I hear people tell their story, I'm thinking, wait a minute, Mm. that 
you're, I, I'm not doubting your experience or I'm not even saying I wouldn't have done the same thing, but you just need to know what you left. That is, that's just a bad version of Christianity. That's, good. that's great. I, I, my, my son, Andrew, um, is an Auburn grad, had a great job, decided he wanted to do stand-up comedy full time, left his great job and is in the world of stand-up comedy. It's the, it was the curveball of our parenting, sure. but we're, you know. But, and we're super proud of him. But the other day, we were, he was at home. We were having this conversation. And, um, you know, he's got – he does lots of comedy clubs all over the country. He, yeah. He'll, it's interesting. So he has – he's in this dark network of, you know, comedy club people. Sure. And here's what he said. He said, Dad, he said, most of my friends and most of these men and women I meet, they all are ex-church people. They're yeah. all ex-church. And he said, and when I hear their stories, here's what he said. He said, if I had grown up in one of those kinds of churches, mm. I probably wouldn't be in church either. Wow. So again, it's not the gospel. The, think of this. The very, the opening line, the the headline was good news of great joy for all, all people. people. Yep. So if your version of Christianity is not good news of great joy great. for all the people, you may not have the right version. And so again, I... I it's understand a great why distillation. people. Well, it's you know it's right there in you yep, know, there the, the it gospel. Is plain. So again, so take so again, trying to help people step back into that those beginning that beginning era of our faith. It's fun, it's fantastic. It mm. was good news, and the yeah, the more oppressed, the better the news. Uh, mm. The less opportunity, the better the news. The more disenfranchised from the religious system, the better the news. So. You know, when we can clear away the clutter and put that back on the top shelf, people lean in. I, I say all the time, I believe people will, would want, if they understood the gospel, they would want it to be true before they believe it's true. And they may never believe it's true, but they would think to themselves, but if only that were true, that would be good news. That's great. I love that. Um, that I find that a spiritual path in my own life, just the longer that I go. And now I'm able to more correctly discern some of the wheat from the chaff and understand what is some just sort of human contribution. Yeah. And then what, what really is, what's at its core. Uh, the longer I go, I'm like, I, Jesus keeps me coming back. That's what I got. That's what I can tell you. Uh, the the yeah. good news is actually yeah. good. And yep. I deeply believe that, and he's worth his salt. By the way, I met your son last year. Um, oh, you did at Orange. Oh, uh, yeah. I was speaking in Orange, and he was doing some comedy. He's hilarious, um, oh, good. and so I'm cheering him on as he goes out oh, there good. and chases Thanks. down that yeah. dream. And good for you for like releasing him into the wild with your blessing, because um, <laughs> that you probably he didn't says, see that one coming. No, he says if he he says it's the second best thing to be in a preacher. At least I'm on stage with a microphone. I'm like, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's you're close. No points, no you know, no screens, you it's know, great. scripture, no application, just man in a microphone. So yeah, that's so great. So here is a good question: What are you going to do today? to just help you feel on top of your game. Maybe you started the day with yoga. Maybe later you're going to lock the door and hop in the bath and lose yourself in a great book. Every single day, we make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And thankfully, the folks at FabFitFun are here to make self-care super simple. 
FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box. It has eight to 10 full-size beauty, fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products inside every box. In fact, every single FabFitFun box has a value of at least over $200. And you get it for $49.99. And once a season, you can visit their website to start customizing your own box. In fact, FabFitFun just shared a few things they're working on for the upcoming winter box. So now you get to contemplate fun things like, would I rather have the Unhide Faux Fur Blanket or the Rebecca Minkoff Beanie Set? I have, through my subscription to FabFitFun, discovered some products that are now my very favorite things. Um, that I have used in regular rotation and that I have also given as gifts. So to grab your own box, go to fabfitfun.com and then use the coupon FTL for $10 off your first box. Not bad. It's fabfitfun.com and then use the code FTL at checkout to get $10 off your very first box. Okay, guys, back to the show. Here's something else you said in the book that I was intrigued by. Um, I think this is incredibly timely. This is timeless, but it's also timely right now. Um, you said you wrote, Jesus liked people who weren't like him, which is pretty plain on its face. But right now, it just seems like we have lost that thread. Absolutely lost it. It's just disintegrated in front of our eyes. You know, if you if you do not agree with me on every single point, then you are against me and I am against you. That's sort of the ethos in our world right now. And so I would love to hear from you your thoughts on how we actually like people who are different than us in their opinions, their beliefs, yeah. maybe their customs, their demeanor even. Um, this isn't just a miracle for Jesus to perform. This is possible for his people too, yeah. right? It's more important than a miracle, right? Yeah. Miracles, you know, then they're it's over and we go on to the next thing. I, you know, going back to something you said earlier, Jen, again, because of my view of theology and the Bible, it is easy for me to be curious. And I actually tell this embarrassing story in the book about how God had to basically stamp out of me and stomp out of me my you know, judgmental spirit that I carried for way too long. And once, you know, once he took me to the woodshed, sure. I, when I meet people who aren't like me and who I think may not like me or just so different, I'm just so curious because here's the thing. And for your listeners, if we could just remember this, everything everybody does makes perfect sense to them. Hmm. So when somebody does something that doesn't make sense to me, I'm the one who needs to learn something. And mm -hmm. everything everybody says and everything everybody believes makes perfect sense to them. So if I don't understand why they would say that or believe that, then it's on me. I don't understand. So if we can just carry that into relationships and conversations and just be curious because everybody's worldview makes perfect sense to them, perfect mm -hmm. sense to them. So that's and you, and you, again you follow Jesus and he was drawn the word you know he was he liked people who were nothing like him the word like is my word but in terms of the gospels he was drawn to people who were nothing like him sure and the best part about it is people who were nothing like him were drawn to Jesus to him, in the book of yeah. Mark in the book of Mark the word crowd shows up in every single chapter but two everywhere he went there was 
there were crowds of people. And it wasn't just the healing and the free food, yeah. right? It was they crowded to hear him teach. No one, no one taught with such authority. So here's yeah. God in a body surrounded by sick, um, uneducated, illiterate yeah. people, and they just couldn't get enough. And mm-hmm. what if the church you know, had a little bit more of that? It, w- it would be remarkable. And those of us in church leadership are mm. hopefully trying to lead in that direction. Mm, same. I heard you mention in an interview that over the past few years, when you teach, that you've largely switched from saying, like, the Bible says, or um, what God's Word says is, to instead you say things like, Jesus taught, or Moses wrote. Um, can you talk about that? Why did, why did you make that shift? What does that mean to you? Well, um, you sent me these questions ahead of time, and I was so grateful. And you're going to think I'm making this up, but... Okay. Um, so as I'm looking at the questions, I later or earlier actually that day was on Twitter and I ran across this tweet. So I'm going to read it to you. This okay. is from a one of the most famous evangelical leaders in the world. Everybody in the world would know this guy's name. And here's okay. what he tweeted. He said, the Bible says, there it is. The Bible uh-huh. says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yes. The first reply is this. The Bible also condones slavery, genocide, rape, and incest. That's yeah. pretty evil. So the reason I Mm. changed my language is once upon a time, nobody knew what the Bible said except people with a Bible who actually read it. Now everybody has an all-access pass to what else the Bible says. And think about this, without ever picking one up or ever Mm. reading one, thanks to the Internet. Sure. So the gig is up. We can no longer hide behind if the Bible says it, you got to believe it, because those days have been over. That's been over for a long time. So what I've said to communicators is I'm not asking you to change your view of the Bible, but if you would like to to peel back one layer of resistance— don't say the Bible says, just mm. say Jesus said, Paul yeah. wrote, Moses said, just go to the source. Because first of all, it's mm. true. Yeah. Secondly, it's more accurate. Right. Because, more specific. This, this gets me in trouble. The term the Bible, T-H-E-B-I-B-L-E, is a, is a title. That's all. <laughs> this sounds terrible. That's what that is. That is a title that someone in the fourth century put on this collection of Hebrew scripture and, and Christian scripture. So the Bible, that that yeah. title is not the authority. The authority, well, Jesus is clear. He said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So Jesus is our authority. So by simply making this little change, we immediately, you immediately, you know, you tune down the resistance in a world that as soon as you say the Bible says, I'm telling you, you yeah. know this, there is a gazillion people out there say that say, yeah, but let me tell you what else of the Bible says. But that's different than when you say Jesus said or the Apostle Paul wrote. It's a bit like me if you're, you know, if, if some of your listeners are Fox News fans, if I began this way saying, hey, today I heard on CNN, they're like, well, yeah, CNN. It's sure. over. They're not even take. Or the other way around, hey, today I heard on Fox News, ah, Fox News. So let's, again, this isn't a change in belief. This is a change in approach. I made this change about 10 years ago. It's good. And again, it, I'm just trying to create on-ramps for people to get them to take a step to follow Jesus. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about what you just said. Um, can you can you discuss further, and we've talked a little bit about this, but I just would like to hear more, how you perceive the Bible. How, how do you think we resist the urge, and I think it's well-intentioned, to hold up the Bible as this 
you know, infallible guidebook. This is our guidebook and it has the answer to every single thing. It's, um, it's, a, it's a template. It is, um, formulaic if you will. Um, or, you know, when we only, we point to it for answers, that's the thing that we are doing. Um, yeah, typically yeah. to be fair, um, maybe to be right. If, if I could, but more charitable yeah. sometimes just because we're looking for answers. Um, what do you think about that? And, and do you believe that we are cheating, if you will, on God when we find <laughs> answers in another faith practice or um, a, a tradition or interpretation that might not be rooted in Western Christianity? Well, I think everybody would agree that all truth is God's truth. So wherever it comes from, I mean, the multiplication tables are assumed in the Bible, but you don't find them in there. Um, the fact that we're reading an English text, we're leveraging so much, um, so much work, so much work. But the work that got us from a Greek text to an English text, that work is not in the Bible, but it's 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 based on what's true. So, again, th- this goes back to a worldview This goes back to what I said earlier about God accommodates to our capacity. So we have an ancient book that was revealed and the the contents were revealed to ancient people. But clearly, God, clearly progressive revelation is a reality. And, you know, I know people get kind of freaked out about that because that carries a lot of baggage. But goodness gracious, what the... One of the greatest gifts that God has given the human race, unlike any other part of creation, is the ability to document information and pass it along to the next generation that that builds on it and passes it along to the next generation that builds on it. And this is the most extraordinary gift we have. So to think that somehow we have to ignore that extraordinary gift that every single person uses that every single day. So you're a hypocrite, you know, anybody's a hypocrite who doesn't think that's a gift of God. But to somehow, when it comes to our theology or our understanding of Scripture, to say, "Well, but this is this is different." Somehow, we can't base, we can't build on what previous generations have built on. That's just a fallacy. You, in fact, it's impossible not to do that. I mean, here I am talking into a piece of plastic to you, <laughs> and we're not even here in the same state. So, um, so I. You know, again, it's a matter of being curious. It's a matter of a worldview that understands just how enormously big God is and enormously powerful God is. And what a gift that I'm able to pass along information to my kids that I didn't have when I was their age, and they're going to build on that information as well. That is part of the human experience, and I think that is the spirit of God and the image of God in us. So anyway, that's kind of an answer to that. About two years ago, I did a series, a four-part series called The Bible for Grownups. That um, And I did it for our folks because as I was helping them navigate some of the questions that came as a result of Irresistible, I realized, you know, there's some, there's always gaps when you write a book or there's unanswered questions. And so for people who hear a conversation like this and they think, oh, I, I don't know what to do with this. This created so much tension in me because I do believe the Bible is the infallible word of God, and yet Andy's saying this. So before you, you write me off or, or, or Jen off, I, it's just it's free. It's on my YouTube channel. It's just, it's just called The Bible for Grownups. And it's just a simple explanation of, of how I was taught in Dallas Theological Seminary, how we got the Bible. And this goes back to your previous question a little bit. Understanding how we got the Bible removes the Bible 
yeah. or, or takes away the option that the Bible is just a guidebook because That's it is great. so much more. And it's the so much more that makes it so extraordinary. And sure, it's full of wisdom literature. The words of Jesus are full of wisdom, but it's the narrative. It's the overarching scope of the story of our salvation that makes this, the Old and New Testament so phenomenal. That that really is um, the most remarkable part. So, But again, because of the way we're presented with the Bible as children, it's easy to miss that. So for me, when I really engage that historical leveraging of how we got, you know, scripture, to me, it always has this immediate effect as feeling like a relief. Um, because to your point, it takes off some of the weird pressure that yeah. I adopted early on yeah. in my sort yeah. of tradition, my sort of faith upcoming Um that was just put the whole Bible in such a pressure cooker. So to yep. me, it releases the pressure valve and lets yep. it be what it is, which is way more marvelous than just oh, a yeah. how-to book. Way more marvelous. Well, one of the things I say in that series that I use as an example of your very point, as I said, look, the first chapters of the point of the first chapters of Genesis is not how God created the heavens and the earth. It's that God created the heavens and the earth versus all the other pagan ancient gods. That This was a polemic. This was an argument against they just left Egypt where the Pharaoh claimed to be a god. So, I mean, think could God really explain to ancient people how he did it? I don't think God could explain to us how he did it. So, God accommodates to our capacity because he's a good father. This, the creation account, it's the point is, hey, good news, you picked the right God you know, he, his, his story doesn't start mid-story because there was already something that was in existence that, you know, was split in half and became the heavens and the earth. He was there from the very beginning. So anyway, there you understand that. But again, that's that's the broader context that helps people, I think, really fall in love with the text as opposed to feel like they have to defend it all the time. Couldn't agree more. One last yep. question. Yep. Um, I find myself these days... Uh, intentionally in some really interesting communities that are not traditionally Christian or they're not evangelical. Um, I have been granted leadership um, space with new people, which is wonderful to me. It's a gift. It is a joy. I've learned immeasurably from people outside this little um, sort of center of the bullseye in which I grew up in. And so to me, that's a a great and glorious good. Um, However, one thing that I encounter a lot uh, in these spaces with um, people who have come from wildly different experiences than I have is that sometimes my faith is a sticking point that, um, you know, it is immediately Velcroed to a board um, that has a lot of other pinned offenses to it, um, historically, recently, all of it. Um, and so it's very hard sometimes to unravel from some of the, I think, undisputed failings and abuses of the church at Mm -hmm. at its extreme, but then even just some of these individual experiences that people walk around with. Um, and so, and yet here it is still precious to me, still important, still sort of my entire North star for my life. A lot of my listeners find themselves in the same place in their workplaces, sometimes in their own families, um, where they are hanging on to this faith that is, misunderstood or it is it's reviled or it's unwanted or it is mocked in some way in their environment sometimes rightly so 
right? With a lot of justification. So can you talk for just a minute about how on earth we can reconcile this gap? Um, How do we relate um, to the people that we love and that we work with who may pretty quickly discredit us uh, because of that particular label? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. um, The the unhelpful thought is every worldview has hickeys. Mm, that's, you know, I love every, that word. Every, Thank you for bringing that back from the eighties. Yeah, I just thought I'd bring that up. Sure. Every worldview has a backstory that is embarrassing. Every single worldview. So let's, that's a great point. You know, so that's that, that. That's not helpful. That's just true. But I don't think. Well, the other thing I I wrote down is I've never met anyone who was anti-Christian because of our checkered history. I've met many who have used our checkered history. And once you get past the you're right, you're right, you're right, and you hear the story, they generally have their own story. But I've, I've yet to meet someone who is a, you know, sold out, spirit-filled, chasing Jesus Christian and found out about, you know, witch trials and found out about abuses and went, oh my gosh, I, I just can't be a Christian anymore. That's That's generally information that comes later and is used to defend someone's unbelief. Now, that, again, that's not really helpful saying that, That, but that's generally true. But the reason I say it, both of those things is because, number one, most I believe that most versions of Christianity that people have abandoned were flawed views to begin with. And number two, if we can just learn to listen and be curious, that's good. everybody loves to tell their story. And once you hear a person's story, you always go, well, gosh, if that had happened to me, me too. If I'd grown up that way, me too. If my dad had done that, me too. I mean, I I, I can't, you know, I don't. So th- there's, you know, that's, I think that's the only inroad is is the stories. We can't defend what's indefensible, but, but generally those aren't the reasons why those are the building blocks they brought to the party afterwards to defend their decision, you know, to be anti-Christian. But again, every every worldview has a, you know, a dark side. So no doubt. I love that. Thank you for saying that. That was um, a great answer. Living a healthy life is far more than just losing weight, right? It's about developing habits that help you feel like your strongest, your most confident self. And I found a partner that guides me and cheers me on. And you've heard me talk about it. It's called Noom. Noom is not a diet. It's just this healthy and easy to stick to way of life. Noom is based in psychology. So it teaches you why you make the choices that you do, like what's under all of this. Um, Plus they arm you with all these tools to start replacing bad entrenched habits with better ones, just really one baby step at a time. Uh, My personal experience with Noom is that it's all these victories in my life that have nothing to do with the scale. That is why this is working for me. I feel so much better in my mind. I feel so much better in my body. I have more energy. I'm developing this muscle memory for confidence because I'm I'm seeing that it is possible to relearn and to begin making good choices for myself in a habitual way. So it's just a game changer for my mindset and then ultimately for my physical health. You can sign up for your absolutely free trial 
So go to Noom, it's N-O-O-M, Noom.com slash for the love. So that is N-O-O-M.com slash for the love. Start making those like small manageable changes this very day. Noom.com slash for the love. Okay, guys, back to our show. Okay, we're going to wrap this up. These are just like three really quick questions that I'm asking every awesome person in this particular series. Um, Some of my favorite people on earth. Here's the first one, just kind of whatever, top of your head. Uh, Who is one, I I won't say your biggest because it's hard to pick, but who's one of your biggest mentors in the faith? Well, if you'd said heroes, my answer would be one thing. But in terms of mentors in the faith, it it really would be uh, Norman Geisler, who uh, taught me so much theology in seminary. He passed away this past July. And Dr. Geisler is a big reason I wrote Irresistible. I was standing on my front porch. He called me one day. He said, Andy, I've seen you've been criticized. He said, you have to write about this. I said, Dr. Geisler, I don't have time to write a book about this. He said, you have to write about it. So I said, yes, sir. And I got busy. And then this past July, he, uh, he was 80, I believe he's 87 years old. And I love, love, love that man. He left a mark on me and so many other people. I love that. So of course, now that you've mentioned it too, we're going to have to hear about the hero. Well, my dad, you know, sure. and just the permission he gave me, he let me, he risked in some cases, his reputation to let me try things and preach for him and defended me as a kid. And defended me to deacons and just just let me find my own way. Um, I'm just just so great. He's 87. He just turned 87 as well. And uh, yeah, so. Oh, yeah. we. I mean, I grew up listening to your dad on tape. Um, that's <laughs> my <we> age. <laughs> so here, how about this one? Uh, and this will probably change over the course of our lives. But for now, if you could ask God a single question, what, yeah. what would you ask him? I love that when I I saw that you asked me that. And you know what? This is absolutely true. I would just say, Heavenly Father, what do you want me to do? I just want to know your will for my life in every season with every opportunity. Just just make it clear. I want to go to bed every night with a clear conscience and know I am in the center of your will. Just that, Because I pray that all the time. I, I My dad taught me this little prayer from Psalm, I think Psalm 37, instruct me and teach me in the way that I'm going to go and counsel me with your eye upon me. That's just, you know, the desire of my heart. So I don't have any hard apologetics questions for God. I figure we'll, that'll get all sorted out later. That'll, that'll flesh out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll all get to heaven and figure out what we were wrong about. Um, Which is, I think is going to be most things. <laughs> yeah, I could not possibly agree more. That's going to make for some hilarious dinner conversations. Um, oh, yeah. Here's the last one. We asked actually everybody every guest in every series, this question, it's from Barbara Brown Taylor. I don't know if you've ever read her, but she is a treasure. Yep. Um, and her question is, what is saving your life right now? It's December and I love the month of December and I love Christmas. And I just have, I love preaching in Christmas, during Christmas season. I love our family during the Christmas season. I love the weather. I just love this month. And it's just reinvigorated me and just brought me that that um, seasonal joy that I think only comes during this time of the year for me. Oh, I love it too. In fact, I usually preach at my church at least once in December too. And a couple of years, I'm so tender 
in December. I I can't handle Jesus in the manger. I can't handle anybody. I can't handle Mary. I like, can't deal. And so a couple of years ago, I was preaching, and I was just reading parts of it. I mean, to tell you, I could not get through it. It was embarrassing, just sobbing. And like, like, I was having a breakdown right there in front of the whole church. <laughs> the rest of the crew was like, Jen, that's it. Like, you can't preach in December anymore. You're just unable. You're, you but can't see, do it. So did you just coin this phrase? Because that could be your sermon this December next. Tender in December. Why am I tender in December? So there's your theme. You're so right. And I'm going to bring that to the board and say, Andy Stanley said, I get another chance. Um, Well, I have a story in my sermon this Sunday that I know I'm not going to be able to get through. I'm going to practice it over and I'm going to read it because I can't. But I just get all emotional, and, and part of it is just this season, I'm telling yep. you. so. Me too. Me too. When I'm writing a sermon, and as I'm writing it, I feel my throat close up. I'm like, well, this is going to be a real <laughs> low spot in the room for everybody. <laughs> um, okay, listen, I, wanna, um, I just want to tell you how much your ministry has meant to me for a really long time, and how many things I've learned from you, and how many sermons of yours I've heard. Um, and how much of your leadership I have paid attention to and, um, taken under advisement and, and then even how many people that I love are in your church and being served well there and serving well as well. And so, um, I, I thank you for being faithful and doing what you were called to do and doing it well and with integrity and with joy. It just really matters. It matters to the world right now, but it matters to me too. So um, thank you for your um, time here on this podcast. My um, listeners are going to thank you too. Thank you so much. I always feel so grateful that I get to have these deep and meaningful conversations with leaders of a really high caliber of leaders who have led the church faithfully for a lot of years, um, who have, uh, developed and evolved in their own ways and, um, and still stayed the course. So I am, I can't wait to hear what you thought about this episode and what moved you. There were several things that Andy said to me that I was like, yes, I like that. I, that's my conviction too. I believe that. I think you've, I think you're getting this right. And, um, and of course I understand some of the controversy and, uh, some of the pushback and anyhow, I can't wait to hear your thoughts on this conversation. Gosh, we have so much more to come in this series. You guys, the faith icon series is lit up. That's just what it is. We have some real, really profound leaders to talk to. And you know me, I'm going to ask the stuff. I'm going to push in and they are strong and faithful and no strangers to deep and important conversations. And so we're going to have them. We're going to have them right here on the show. So come back next week. Um, Plenty more to come and uh, can't wait to bring you the other conversations in this series. Okay, you guys, um, thanks for being amazing listeners. You are the greatest. See you next week. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.